I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. Today we're talking with Sheila Paddock, professor of biology at Duke University. Sheila works on the evolutionary mechanics of movement and communication. She mostly studies marine invertebrates like spiny lobsters and mantis shrimp, but she also works on ants and other land-dwelling creatures, some of which are the fastest-moving things on the planet. Sheila's research has attracted a lot of attention from scientists, but also from politicians. A few years ago, her work was included in Senator Jeff Flake's Waste Book. Senator Flake and his team used the Waste Book to highlight what they consider to be irresponsible use of taxpayer dollars. We'll hear from Sheila about what happened and about how that experience ultimately had a silver lining as it gave her an opportunity to explain the importance of basic research to those in control of the federal budget. Before we get into it, a quick reminder about the structure of this podcast. This one is the long version, a slightly edited version of our entire conversation with Sheila. But we also release a much shorter one that hits just the highlights, which you can find on our website. Also, please think about making a donation to Big Biology. So far, almost everything you've heard has been done by volunteers. We're working toward becoming more sustainable, and it would help enormously if you could give just a few bucks per episode or make a single small donation. You can donate on our website, bigbiology.org. We have really exciting stuff in the pipeline, including an episode on phenotypic plasticity and niche construction with Massimo Piliucci, and another episode on immune systems with Fred Tauber. Stay tuned. Today on Big Biology, we're talking with Professor Sheila Paddock from uh, Duke University. Uh, Really excited to have you on the show, Sheila, so welcome. Thank you for having me, Marty and Art. (laughs) Yeah, thank you a lot for joining us. So today we wanted to, uh, I guess, cover basic biology, and we're thinking about entitling the episode, Why Basic uh, Biology? And we're excited to have you because you've done some really interesting basic biology research, but you've also in the recent past, too, um, been a big advocate for the value of basic biology. So I guess um, let's let's start there. Uh, you've you've had the the fortune to interact with some some folks in pretty powerful positions about um, uh, basic biology. So do you want to re- sort of recount your experiences there and the and the and the goods and the bads of those interactions? So you're talking about Senator Flake, Marty? Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, Gosh, it's kind of a long story, (laughs) which you may not want to hear all of. Um, I guess the short version was I had the opportunity to go up to meet members of Congress and as part of of a presentation where those of us who'd been named as wasteful researchers or researchers using federal funding wastefully could go and respond to people in the government about it. So uh, my research program had been named in Senator Flake's waste book, and so he came uh, to that presentation, and so I had a chance to talk with him and also to talk to the person who writes his waste book, someone named Roland. And it was, uh, for me, very positive to get a chance to see and talk to the people face-to-face who were doing these things and and making these decisions. I think they listened. They certainly responded. 
And I think overall, it was a really positive experience in the sense that it allowed me to um, leverage a conversation in the broader world, in the broader country, and amongst scientists about um, why basic research is important, how we can talk about it in a lot of different ways, the fact that it actually is possible to go up to D.C. and talk to these <laughs> folks in person. This is an option. Not something I would have <laughs> guessed would be easy to, to pull off. Yeah. Uh, um, can, can I just ask, uh, you know, I think it's every working scientist's worst nightmare to get that kind of negative attention on a national level and from, you know, political voices. So so how, how did you find out about your inclusion in Wastebook? And, you know, how, how, how did the news come to you? Well, it came to me in a really kind of awful way. It was my birthday weekend. <laughs> I opened up my email and it was an email from Good Morning America, ABC News, asking me to comment on my research having been included in the waste book. And I hadn't even known at that point that it had been included. Wow. So I definitely, it, it, it hurt when I saw that email. Yeah. And, and so how long did it take you to... <coughs> How long did it take you to sort of wrap your head around that news and decide what to do? It took me like one second. <laughs> <laughs> instant fury? Yeah, no, it wasn't instant fury. It was like, oh, man. Well, in part because I am definitely not the first. There are some pretty legendary, phenomenal scientists who've been named in these waste books yep. for decades. Mm -hmm. I knew all about it. I, a close friend of mine had been named, other close colleagues have been named and somewhat tortured on this for a long time. And in fact, a lot of my teaching and broader discussions with the scientific community prior to this had been about basic research and the value of basic research because of what I had seen happening to other people. Mm -hmm. So when it happened to me, of course it was just miserable to realize that, oh gosh, you know, this is... That now it's me. But it didn't come out of the blue. I think for some people, this stuff has come out of the blue and they've been blindsided by it. Mm -hmm. I just sat down and I was like, all right, I'm going to start emailing and <laughs> I'm going to get help and I'm going to figure out what we're going to do about it. And the response was was really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So so maybe tell us about those responses. And, and this is from people and from your university. And yeah. 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 So. So what, I, what happened? Oh, gosh. I mean, I got, on, I got on email and I emailed my program officers at the NSF, at the Department of Defense. I emailed the press office at Duke. I emailed my friends who'd been through this before. Um, uh, you know, a whole network of people. You know what? I even emailed my family. So I'm not from an academic family. <laughs> And I said, hey, you know, what do you think? You've been watching me do all this stuff. What do you think is important about it? And got really great responses. So my family, there are a lot of teachers, uh, actually public school teachers. And boy, they know what it's like to have, um, I mean, they deal with this every day practically with their funding being cut and their salaries being cut. So in many ways, they were actually more politically savvy than I was. So, and the response was awesome. It was everything from Duke saying, you know, we've got your back. We're going to help you through this. My program officer saying, well, we can't we can't coach you because that's where it's against the law. You can't have federal people working for the federal government doing that. 
but they said, you know, we, we think what the research you're doing is absolutely top notch and there's no question about that. And then they forwarded me to the people at these agencies that can talk to me about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, my family's my family. They were awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Got to talk to your grandmother, huh? Get the <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, honey, you're you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So, how, how do you know how long the the waste book or things like it have been around? Oh, in for the US? for decades. I mean, I think it's been over sixty years. Oh wow. Yeah, it's a long, long, long running stunt, and what's happened is that the first folks who are doing it have retired and then other other folks take it on and then now i think like a couple people in congress do it senator flake is one of them and he takes a very like i guess the way one person put it is senator flake has a great sense of humor so he does it in a very goofy way uh and whereas other people are you know less goofy about it Mm -hmm. so so how effective do you think the waste book is in terms of his political agenda and, you know, d- d- does it have the intended effect of, of undercutting support and funding for, you know, some scientific projects? I know that some scientists have really been tortured and really investigated. And for some people, this turned out to be a total nightmare mm. of like really major proportions. So um, I, I, it's... It's de- it's very dependent on the particular circumstances and who's doing it. What is effective for a politician? I don't know. I'm not a politician. It certainly gets him on the news. It gets him attention, mm-hmm. which is, I think, what most politicians want. Mm-hmm. Does it change the law? No, but this was in the budget. So, you know, it was written up in the budget for Congress. So it's it's in the public record now. Mm-hmm. So it is serious in that regard. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the discussion as these folks vote on budgets. So it is serious. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are votes and there are decisions about where money goes. And this is part of that discussion, even if it's framed as very goofy and silly. Right. So was it successful for Flake? I don't know. Uh, but it got him attention. Uh, and it got into the budget. Yeah. So okay, so we were talking about the the history of the waste book and uh, what influences it has it had. So, Sheila, I think you can expect the the way we want to take that. Do you think that the situation with the waste book is is it becoming intenser or is it pretty much the same as it's been for fifty years or so? Well, let's see. It's a rich part of the conversation of basic research today in the United States. And there have been responses to it that are pretty awesome. So has the intensity of trying to shut down or reduce funding to basic research, has that, has that argument intensified? I, I don't know if it's intensified. It's always been a very serious uh, concern. We all know that, that funding for basic research has been static or decreasing for a long time. The responses to it, though, I think are pretty great. So there's the Golden Goose Award, which is uh, an award that was made in response to these waste books. That It's a very serious award, and it's basically given to researchers who, whose research was originally deemed as a waste of money and has ended up being, you know, very hugely important to society today. 
And I mean, when I first heard about this, I was like, well, how, how could, how, how important are these studies? And, and, you know, after I saw the, the research that's been awarded the Golden Goose Award, honestly, I could only hope that my research could have that much impact. So the, in a way, what they've done is they've turned it around and said, oh my gosh, you guys, the, the folks putting this stuff in waste books are so completely wrong based on some of the outcomes of these studies. So, you know, this is, this is kind of, a, you know, we're at, we're at a rough moment here in the United States with, you know, polarization and stuff like this. But this is one of these times where I really like our country. So you can have someone getting up and making fun of basic research. You can have these horrible arguments. And then there's another community of folks who get put their heads together and make this Golden Goose Award. It's a hugely big deal. It's a fantastic, they, they publicize this work in a beautiful way. There are agencies that work to promote basic research. Those are the folks that organized the session that allowed me to talk to Senator Flake. This was not Duke that did that. This is a separate, completely separate organization. And when I meet and I see these folks doing that, I mean, it kind of feels like all's right with the world. <laughs> so yes, there's nothing, nothing good about this in the sense that we have, like, there is, there's no, nobody should be assuming that this kind of funding is going to continue. It's always a discussion. It's always a vote. There are always people who are going to get up and get against it. And it's, that's really serious. I'm not under, I'm not saying it's not serious, but what is wonderful is to see the richness of the response. That's mm. what I like. Yeah. Lovely. Um, so you went to D.C. Um, with a group of scientists and you met with Jeff Flake and you presented your research to him. Um, so how, how did that go? And do you think you made some headway with him? Yeah, I mean, by all accounts, Senator Flake is a decent guy. I mean, I, I have scientists who who email me. They're like, "Hey, man, he, he's awesome." So sorry you're having a rough time with him. I, we had a we had I, it felt good. He listened, which I think is the first thing you could ask of anybody. He, well, actually, the first thing is that he showed up. Mm. He didn't have to show up to this poster session, mm -hmm. and then he listened. Can't ask for more, really, right? Yeah, and so and it was a really cool opportunity to walk him through those original discoveries and the pathways to some applied translational stuff to get to show him about these amazing capabilities of, as it turns out, animals, plants, and fungi. It's not just animals that are doing things that we can't do. And it, that was cool. After we were done and, and I asked him, you know, what he thought was important and he, he you know, clearly liked the applied outcome, the products that were coming out from this stuff that I have nothing to do with, but my original research made possible that original knowledge. Then I talked to the person who actually writes the waste book. And that was a very long and fruitful discussion. Hmm. And clearly we were never going to see things, you know, from the same perspective. We're from different worlds, different priorities. But again, it was a rich conversation, a lot of back and forth, a, a lightheartedness that I, that I like, you know, an easiness of conversation. And we went back and forth about things as simple as like, you know, I asked him, could I have your um, business card? And he shot back, I don't have one. It would be a waste of taxpayer money for me to have business cards. <laughs> and so I reached for my business card and I said, uh, well, you can have mine and I can tell you that mine was not purchased with federal funds because I'm not allowed to use federal funds to print my business card. I just went and bought the stuff from Kinko's or whatever the store is and printed it out on my color printer. And 
you know, they probably cost five cents each. So here you go. Mm. And, and so we had some conversations about that and actually a lot of conversations about the process of getting federal money. Hmm. I'm under the impression that he did not know that there is a peer review process. That's astonishing because it's such yes. a big deal for us, right? That's right. So maybe for our listeners, do you want to just talk for a minute about that peer review process? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there is a broad misconception that federally funded scientists like myself, we write up a little something, we deliver it to somebody, and then we get a check in the mail. And this is so far from the truth that it's actually kind of painful that this is a prevailing view of how we get money. And I explained to him what it's like. And I, I mean, you two know, not everybody maybe who's listening knows, but we write these grants and we send them in to, for example, the National Science Foundation. And there's a panel of scientists who reviews them some in person, some sent out. These are people that can't have any connection to you and, and the research itself, so it should be separate. So they don't have any vested interest in you getting this funding. And I think any scientist will tell you that what you will get back the first, probably second, maybe third or even fourth or fifth time that you try, and this, by the way, is years of sending these in, what you get back are the most like eviscerating, <laughs> hardcore, miserable comments about how your research is awful <laughs> until you finally have written something that is so watertight that finally these scientists don't find something wrong with it. And then, then you get ranked as fundable, but that doesn't mean you're going to get funded because there's not enough money to fund everybody who's finally deemed fundable. Mm -hmm. And that final decision is made by folks at the NSF who have to look at distribution of money across the country and make sure that it's equitably distributed and all this other stuff. Uh, I would say the stat that impresses me the most perhaps about NSF is that about 5% or 4% of the grant proposals that get turned in every year are funded. So the competition is extremely fierce, right? Yeah. So for comparison, right? So I went to Harvard for undergrad. And that's considered a reasonable achievement, a really hard thing to do. So a four to five percent acceptance rate, that means that like you have to get into Harvard every time you want to get funding for your lab for a mere two or three years. Mm -hmm. That is how hard it is. Mm -hmm. It's extremely hard. It's backbreakingly hard. It's a reason why people now, young people are choosing not to stay in science because they see how hard it is. So this is the kind of thing I was talking to Roland about, the, the guy who writes the Waste book. And, you know, this, it, these conceptions run really deep that this is some kind of elite game that we're just pulling all this taxpayer stuff. And it's so far from that. It's such a rigorous, hard, demoralizing, difficult process. And I think anybody who manages to get an NSF grant today, it feels massively important. And man, we treasure every single cent of that money that comes to us. I mean, it's really, really precious. Mm -hmm. And I think all of us treat it as such. And we have to be productive while we're on that grant. So we're looked at. We have to submit huge reports, and you know, make we, we, if you, if you blow off that money, you're never going to get another one. So yeah. Uh, so you know, this is this is great because it gives perspective to uh, you know how how difficult it is to do basic science in the first place. But um, you know, given that probably a lot of our audience uh, isn't scientists, and yet most people are consuming science in some sense, where do you think 
this perspective on basic biology for you know a lot of the general public is coming from and i mean it, it i guess the, the other way to ask that question is there's something that we are doing wrong or did wrong with our education system to lead people to think at least you know in the abstract with the jeff flakes of the world see something on paper and think that it's nonsense until somebody like you who's doing the work explains to them why i mean clearly he could process it when when you get that personal touch but is there something in the educational system that's leading us to think that that basic research isn't as important as we used to so marty absolutely and when all this stuff was happening i was getting a huge amount of correspondence from the public and you know emails phone calls handwritten letters and one of the things that I heard the most was from teachers. And, and when I say teachers, I mean everything. I heard from teachers from elementary school, from high school. I heard from professors in medical schools saying that there is something deeply embedded in the shift of the focus of our education system where there has been a huge loss of the thread, uh, the connection, which is super ironic between what is education, what are we learning, and what is basic knowledge. And I, I know that sounds completely impossible, but when, when our education system is focusing on what is, the, what is the knowledge going to be used for, what is the application, or that, you know, oh, we're learning about circulatory systems, like in a class that I teach for physiology, only because you want to become a doctor. Or that there's, some, you know, something, this is what I heard from a lot of them. And the other, the other part of that was the teachers saying that when all this testing is going on and you're teaching to the test and there's all this stuff with, like, needing um, – you know, to cover certain material, we've lost the space for creative freedom and just the, the actual process of discovering our own knowledge. That there, there used to be a lot more space in our education and our just daily lives for that joy of discovery. And if that's taken out of the day-to-day -day for education, um, it becomes... It, you lose what that feeling is and what that value is. So I, I really feel strongly, and this has certainly been a, a huge response to some of that effort that I've made to thinking about the role of understanding what knowledge actually is, how you get it, how you get it for yourself, that joy of getting it from somebody else, the sort of nonlinear, bizarre pathway of new knowledge and how it permeates into our culture. Um, that's a really important thing that seems like it ought to be the foundation of education, but we've lost that thread. So I think you're right. All right. So your, your, uh, the story that you told in a couple of different places, I'm not remembering now where it was, but um, I think it was a lecture that you had given at Harvard where a, a world-famous Nigerian lawyer was in the audience and had an interesting look on her face and didn't really ask any questions after you were done, and then you bumped into her in the hall later. And what she said – uh, I, I mean, I, if, if you can just sort of tell the story there, because it's just such an interesting comparison with, you know, what we're talking about in the American education system and what she coming from another country is thinking about from her, you know, her own experience. Could you could you just fill us in on that story? Yeah, it's such a cool story. Uh, one that's that 
that that story I, I consider a real watershed moment in my life and as a person. So I was at Harvard for a year doing an interdiscipline, a multidisciplinary fellowship. This means that one of my next a next door neighbor in my office was a composer. There was a physicist around the corner, and then there were political scientists. And then there were people like this lawyer. And this woman is truly one of the most amazing human beings I've ever met. So she's someone who has defended women against Sharia law. She's done huge things for the whole world, right? Something I could only wish for. Now, she was there for a year with this multidisciplinary institute. We're hearing people talk about, like the National Poet of Wales was there. She talked about writing a poem about her time on a boat. This did not bother this lawyer. And I got up to give my mandatory seminar, which was, of course, really fun and really cool. And she looked really upset at what, during the talk. And everyone else is like smiling and loving it. And, you know, it was really all about knowledge and the joy of knowledge from a science point of view. And she left at the end of it. And I was really concerned because I consider, considered her a friend. And she really looked, she looked mad. And because we're there for a year, I ran into her later. And she approached me and she said, um, this is what I remember her saying, of course, it's probably not exactly right, but this is my recollection, is she said to me, she said, your talk disgusted me. And I just, I, I, it really, like, it was a verbal, I and mean, we were talking about one of the great lawyers of today, right? So this was delivered in a way that was eviscerating, frankly. It just seemed so just wasteful and just useless, and she said it really upset her to see money and, and, and resources put towards this kind of work. And she went to teach her seminar. That she, was, she was teaching a, a class. And she was talking about this. And she had this sudden realization that she had always thought from being in Nigeria and trained there that science was an applied subject, that you only did science to solve problems. And she just had never been around science as a new knowledge base in the way that she was comfortable with the poetry and the fiction and this other stuff that was presented there. And she realized, she said to me, and so by this point, like halfway through this thing, I'm a, I'm, I, I don't think I was in tears, but I had to be pretty close because this was, this was based, she was saying like everything that I always thought that, that, was useless about me and my choice of career. You know, I would like to be like my family, you know, making an impact on, on young people in public schools, and, and I'm just not cut out for that. And so she, she's basically like, like verbalizing all of my inner insecurities. And then she said, she, she's like, and then I was thinking, and I realized that I want what you have for my country. I want people in my country to be able to go out and discover new things in science. And, and so she had this total epiphany of like, um, not just not even understanding science as a basic knowledge process. 
So it really, that just really got to me. And in, and in a weird way, it was that, in, in, it, that it was that conversation and that exchange. I actually spent much of the rest of my time at that institute really asking myself, was I doing the right thing? How was I talking about it? Was I being frivolous in my conversation about this new knowledge? Um, so it really shifted that. It started my, me thinking. And then, you know, these wastebook things started happening. So in a, in a really bizarre way, like mentally, I was super queued up for this moment with Senator Flake. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I had been really thinking, you know, critically in my own in my own life about whether what I was doing is worthwhile. Literally, I had had conversations, many of them was, you know, am I using federal funds well I look at I look at my family members struggling to just get kids to have lunch at school to pay their own bills. Like, am I doing the right thing here? And so, you know, it was it was a really amazing moment. And I, I'm so grateful for her to to have been thinking so deeply and to have had that kind of response and then to deliver it to me in a way that was so life changing. I mean, what a, what an amazing human being, I think <laughs> she is an amazing human being. Well, she had the positive impact on you in the sense of the the various different efforts. So you mentioned, you know, that you're having high school teachers in your lab a lot, Brookings paid researchers and, and a bunch of other things that way. So there was, it was a positive influence, not just on you, it's other people around you too. Yeah. Yeah. So when it came time to structure, for example, outreach for, um, as part of my federal grants, we're required to do that. I, I spent a lot of time researching what would be the biggest impact you know, what, what is it that I could do in my lab that would, would reach the most people and ha have the best impact in terms of our education system, in terms of understanding, or in terms of connecting the dots for people? And so I, I read a lot of papers, and this is widely known, although not necessarily widely practiced, that one of the best things you can do is get a teacher in your lab, because whatever you can do to... Um, facilitate the teacher's learning, their experience of the process of science, the community of science, and then, um, and actually, the, the, we can actually, as the lab, uh, provide information to the teacher for bringing, you know, maybe the certain topics up to speed with the latest research. So I ended up getting funding and, and I've run a five-year program called um, a research experience for teachers program in my lab. And we pay research, uh, pay teachers to come in in the summer. Oftentimes they really need that money uh, to get through the year. So we pay them a good salary. Um, oftentimes it, 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 it counts as credits for their own promotion at their school. And we've actually published a paper pretty high profile paper with a physics teacher. Um, we have some pretty incredible materials now that we distribute for, uh, for lessons. And these teachers, uh, you know, they, they've blown me away as human beings, as how hard they work, how committed they are. But that the instance of, of interacting with that teacher multiplies a ton when you think about all the students that they encounter. Um, and the teachers have always said it's been very invigorating for them to be in that environment just for, you know, we I think it's about eight, six or eight weeks that they come mm -hmm. in. Awesome. Um, so we haven't talked about your basic research yet, and I think we should do that. Um, okay, well, Sheila, why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the basic research that your lab does? And uh, maybe let's start. I want to hear about smashing and spearing shrimp. All right. Yeah, so we work on a lot of different systems that move extremely fast. And one of them is um, mantis shrimp. They're also called stomatopods. They are not the kind of shrimp you typically eat with cocktail sauce. 
at all. They're a different branch. They're not really technically shrimp. And they have great big appendages that they use for capturing prey. They're really diverse. So there are about 450, 500 species of them. And these little appendages, which are actually mouthparts, are a lot of different shapes. So some of them have hammers, essentially, on what's kind of the equivalent of our elbow. And they move it at bullet-like accelerations to smash open snail shells. And then there are other ones that have what look like kind of spiny appendages. And they hide in burrows and capture fish and crustaceans and stuff like that that are swimming overhead. Mm-hmm. And so, so how, do, how do they do it? How do they move so fast? And how do they create the forces that can break shells, which, you know, are supposed to be unbreakable, right? Right. The, the way animals can do this is actually not through muscle. The, one of the hardest things to understand about these systems is that they are going so fast and they're generating so much power in terms of work divided by time. That's a physics-y thing, but that type of power. So I'm not talking about electricity, but I'm talking about like watts, you know, like the brightness of the light bulb. So the rate at which they're, they're producing this energy exceeds what muscles can do. So that means that they have to be using something else. And it turns out what they're using are springs. And the mechanism that they use is very similar to a bow and an arrow. If you imagine trying to throw an arrow, you would not take down a deer. But you can use that exact same muscle, set of muscles in your arms, to load a bow and release it with the latch, which is your fingers. And the bow itself flings the arrow fast enough with a high acceleration enough to take down the deer. It's, your muscles are involved in both, but the difference is you can use the forceful part of your muscle action to load a very stiff spring, which is the bow. Hmm. And then the bow itself just accelerates the lightweight mass of the arrow, as opposed to you having to accelerate the whole mass of your arm while throwing the arrow. Hmm. So biology has evolved a spring and a latch type of bow and arrow system. In this, in the mantis shrimp's case, they're not like they're not shooting the arrow; it's it's their appendage. Mm-hmm. But they basically are using materials, springy materials, to generate massive amounts of power. And, so, and, and can you say how that spring works? Like, like where where is it on the appendage, and how does it get loaded? Yeah. So uh, mantis shrimp have evolved very force modified muscles. We vertebrates, humans and mammals and stuff, we don't have that option. But for some reason in arthropods and crustaceans, they can evolve very forceful muscle by changing some lengths of the underlying parts of it. So these mantis shrimp take a very forceful muscle and they basically flex a piece of their exoskeleton. And the best analogy that I can come up with is it's a little bit like if you could picture a metal ruler on a table and you're holding one end down and you pull the other end up and then you let go that other end will will slap down very quickly mm-hmm. and the part that the mantis shrimp is flexing is a little bit like that and so it's a very very stiff material that then pushes the appendage to rotate around and hit awesome. so why it produces so much force and it, it's a very high peak force. It's very, very transient. It's extremely brief. So the amount of energy in that strike compared to like an alligator bite is very small. 
But amazingly, the peak force that a mantis shrimp produces is actually equivalent to what an alligator bite hmm. can produce. So what they're doing is they're doing a very different strategy for delivering energy to hard-shelled prey than just a, you know basically using a big, heavy, muscle-driven jaw mm -hmm. to crush something. They're using a really transient, high-peak force to fracture hard-shelled prey. Mm -hmm. so it's an alternative strategy for a little animal. Awesome. So, so there's, uh, I know from, you know, reading up on your stuff that there's, there's two things happening, right? There's the strike of the hammer against the shell, and then there's a secondary thing that happens because of that strike. So can you talk about that secondary thing and cavitation? And Yeah. yeah. That was one, one of, there, there are lots of highlights of my career that you've heard a few parts that were pretty <laughs> brutal. But one of the really fun moments was when we filmed Mantis Shrimp with a high speed enough video camera high-speed imaging system where we could slow it down enough to see what was happening and I, I still remember the day when we we're watching the, the the images coming off and I could see this formation of a bubble in between the hammer and the snail and because of some other work that I'd done on seahorses and some other stuff I knew what that bubble was. It's called cavitation. And you only see that in systems that are moving so extraordinarily fast that the water molecules are pulled away from each other. A lot like boiling water, but it's not boiling, but it's basically water turning it's like into you're vapor. ripping the water almost, right? Yeah. yeah. And it, it's a very transient moment of formation of a vapor bubble. But when that vapor bubble collapses, it emits heat equivalent to the surface of the sun it emits light and emits sound. It is a massive implosion. Hmm. And there, the mantis shrimp were doing that. So in addition to hitting with this extraordinary peak force just from the hammer and the bow and arrow type system, they were also pulling in this other fluid dynamic phenomenon as a consequence of moving so fast. And so we can actually, we have measured the forces of both the impact as well as the collapse of the cavitation bubble. And which one is more important? I, you know, we still don't know. Hmm. And one of the things about the research program that I've chosen to work on is we are constantly pushing the envelope of technology. And it, we don't have the ability quite yet to resolve these types of forces and to be able to even see the fracture itself happening, to know whether that implosion of the cavitation, the, the smash of the hammer, which one of it is more is more important. I mean, we've done things like go to this, like the brightest X-ray beam in the world. We've gone and, and filmed it there on their high-speed imaging line. And we still can't resolve these things. They're hmm. very short, hmm. um, very, very fast. So it's really fun. I love pushing the envelope on what we can even see or detect in biology. But that envelope is not just in biology. It's for everybody. So it's not like I can call up an engineer. I actually do. I have a friend who's, who's down the road from me who does this stuff. And he also can't see it in the engineering problems. Hmm. Hmm. Neat. Yeah. Marty, do you want to interject with anything? Uh, the cavitation is just so incredibly cool. <laughs> I spent um, about 15 minutes trying to explain what little bit I understood to my daughter last night. And she, she had a, a, a good question that I, I don't know, I couldn't answer. So, Sheila, I have to ask you. We don't have to keep this on um, unless you find it um, you know, interesting for the general public. But is cavitation something that can happen in air? 
Oh, you know, that is, that is actually an excellent question, and I get it very frequently. Cavitation is a word that is used for a number of different phenomena, not all the same. So if you look it up online and you know, read up on it, you'll see that some people think that thunder is from cavitation. And uh, I, I have not been able to wrap my head around whether that is the same physical phenomenon as what the type of cavitation, that technical term that we use for in water. Trees cavitate, which is interesting. So when they're dehydrated or in a drought, those fluid columns that, that move up and down a tree can separate and cavitate. So, but that is, that's still water. It's in a pipe, but it's a water thing. Um, there are ferns that cavitate to release their spores. It's kind of like a latch for them. But again, that's within a cell. So I, I think, I, I, I don't, in terms of the type of cavitation that Mandeship are using, I don't think it works in air because air is already in a gas. And the type of cavitation I'm talking about is a phase, a particular type of phase shift between a liquid right. and a gas. Maybe that's too technical, okay. but I get that question often enough that I figured I'd give you the whole shebang. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I shortcut the intermediate part of the conversation. It came from the fact that the mantis shrimp is, is doing its thing in water and there's, you know, the, the resistance there. And she was asking about not having the resistance in air. Would there be land-based things that use cavitation to their advantage like mantis shrimp do? So uh, this is the rest of the story. Well, you know, you can tell her that we do film mantis shrimp in air and there's no cavitation and they go a lot faster way faster mm -hmm. because there's not that fluid drag, the water drag, the force of the water on it, slowing them down. So, okay. so the mantis shrimp are hitting the shells to break them. Why don't they break their hammers? Ah, right. So that is a great question because shells have always been held up as one of the most unbreakable materials in biology. And our discovery of the hammers breaking the shells, I mean, actually it wasn't our discovery. People have known that forever, but the, in the process of, of us publishing that work and talking about it, the material scientists definitely took note. And a lot of people started to realize, holy smokes, there's a material that breaks snail shells. So the answer is pretty technical, but let's see if I can explain. <laughs> I can hardly wait. Right? <laughs> so um, you can think about the hammer being filled with what kind of looks like a plywood material. So lots of layers upon layers upon layers that, that are oriented with the fibers oriented in different directions. And that type of layering is very standard in biology and it reduces crack formation. And that's why plywood works pretty well. It's pretty sturdy stuff. So there's that layer. And then there's a, uh, there's a shift in the type of materials that build the hammer. So the outermost part of the hammer is very mineralized, very, very hard. What's in it? Oh, like your standard heavy-duty materials in the ocean, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. uh, Phosphates and metals and... Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, I should I, I, I should know. I should be able to rattle off <laughs> no, the top worry, three, no but no I'm worry. blanking, Sorry, man. I, I interrupted. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question, and I know the answer, but not right this okay, second. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> is known. That out. And that's actually been known for yeah. a long time. So lots of minerals on, on the outer layer, so it's very hard. So when they hit... What happens is the force of the strike actually gets concentrated in the center of the hammer, which then dissipates the force and stops the cracks from propagating out. Hmm. So that, weirdly enough, is pretty similar to a snail shell so far, what I've told you. What's different is that mantis shrimp have this all very pressurized, so very tightly, tightly wound. The whole thing is very tight. It's a little bit like a baseball, having that tight wrapper. And so it has a very tight wrapper, the mantis shrimp's hammer. And that final added detail allows them to essentially hit the snail shell, break the snail shell, concentrate the forces in the center, and not break themselves. Now, they do wear their own hammers away. Definitely. So this is not a perfect material, but they can molt. Um, and they take, you know, every few months they do. But I've definitely seen mantis shrimp where the hammer is worn down to the flesh. Hmm. That's almost and, a sad thought, right? I mean, it, yeah, they, they, it is. They probably can't break shells, and so they're starving until the, ne- right. the next molt. Right. Or, or is it a death sentence if they get? Well, they have two. Uh-huh. And sometimes they just switch to the other or they're using one more than the other. But right. yeah, we've seen some hungry mantis shrimp. Yeah. You know, one like weird thing to just mention is that what I just told you about how the mantis shrimp's hammer is built is pretty fundamental to many biological systems. But also people who make hammers and swords use these same principles. Huh, really? So there's actually some pretty great history in the, the making of unbreakable weaponry right alongside some real lessons that we've learned from the history of bow and arrow construction, where hmm. people have played with things like the stiffness of the bow, the delivery of energy, how much force can you produce with an arm? So there are some pretty cool parallels that we've been able to learn from the history yeah, of awesome. these these devices. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that brings it back into the realm of, of bio-inspired design. So have people used what you've discovered about this process and about these hammers to do solve engineering problems? Absolutely. There, there, there in some ways has been a groundswell of interest in biological materials, the, the mantis shrimp's hammer in particular, and absolutely. So materials labs, um, definitely in the U.S. and other places around the world, have been fabricating materials that take those same kinds of principles. And what they're, what they're doing is they're trying to find very lightweight, cheap, easy-to-build fracture-resistant materials, which is what we want in things like helmets and armor and a variety of other places. You don't want to have to wear some big, heavy metal thing. So it it happened, you know, our discoveries of, of what these hammers could do and the material scientists' recognition of this cued right up with a lot of interest in even things like football players needing better protection and having better helmets. So this stuff has definitely made it way made its way all the way into that arena. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Hmm. So Chile, can you say something about the uh, the sort of world record uh, that world records that have been broken by by the mantis shrimp? I mean, in terms of the the force and the speed of, of movement, you said ultra fast is is what you study, but I don't think we really said how fast fast is. Yeah. So we work on stuff that that is basically invisible 
to the naked eye. So we can, we can just, nothing that I study can you actually see. So there you go. That's part one. <laughs> and then we can, then we can cue it up to things that we know about. So if you think about the blink of an eye, uh, hundreds of these movements could happen in a blink of an eye. They don't happen. That they, the animals don't, can't do it, you know, can't repeat those movements that fast. Or you can compare it to kind of crazy other things in the world today. A lot of times we talk about the acceleration of a bullet. So mantis shrimp hammers are right along the same order of magnitude as that. The trap jaw ants that we study are an order of magnitude faster. And there are these stinging cells of jellyfish that are, as this at this point, the fastest recorded movement in the terms in terms of um, acceleration and uh, duration in terms of being very, very brief. It's, it's hard to do a good analogy for these systems because it's not a bullet, right? It's a different size. It's a different context. So it's, yeah, kind of have to take that with a grain of salt, but there aren't really, since we can't see these things, there aren't really easy parallels. Like, you know, you can't say, oh, they jump as high as a frog. Well, mm -hmm. there it, it, it's, it's, in a, it's in a completely different universe. I mean, frog jumping is down there at the very bottom of like fast things, as it turns out, on, on this in this realm that we study. <laughs> <laughs> well, something that drove it home for me that, that you had written, I don't remember in, in what document uh, we were looking at, but um, that the brain of these things, the ner their neurons can't work as fast as this action. So they're not able to sort of make adjustments on the fly. It's sort of, you know, it is just a movement. Things are, are literally moving faster than the speed of, of uh, nervous propagation. That's just, you know, okay, I can't resist the pun, striking. <laughs> yeah, so this is something I've tried to combat over the years. So when you study stuff like I do that, you know, pretty much everything we study some of it actually is in the Guinness Book of World Records. You know, like there, these are we're always breaking records, right? And so, a natural conclusion is that these are the most amazing, unbeatable creatures on the planet. And in contrast, I have to say that these organisms that move out to these extremes of kinematics actually hit some pretty terrible trade-offs. They, they come with some serious costs. And one of them is if you're going to move that fast, like a mantis shrimp or a trap jaw ant, it is invisible to the nervous system. So our neurons, it takes time for a signal to travel down a neuron. It takes a while. And it takes longer than the entire duration of the movement. So this means that these animals are blind to the movement. And that means that they have to figure it all out ahead of time. This also means that these very, very, very fast animals, and these are smashing mantis shrimp and not, not the spearing mantis shrimp. So spearing mantis shrimp are slower. The, the truly fastest animals are not chasing prey. So things like the cheetah, which is often held up as being you know, the fastest movement. Actually, it's not, but I, I'm, I love cheetah work, so I don't want to ding it. But these animals have to be able to track their prey real time. Spearing mantis shrimp 
are much slower than smashing mantis shrimp. And one reason, they have the same machinery, but one very good reason why they're probably slower is that they have to be able to adjust their strike in order to track prey. The very fastest Hmm. animals on the planet are attacking the very slowest animals on the planet. I mean, think about it. Like a smashing mantis shrimp moving their hammer as fast as a bullet is hitting a snail, right? So this this in and of itself has like been a real mind bender for a lot of people, myself included, really having to switch around our thinking of what is fast for or what are the costs that come along with fast. Yeah. Um, so, so Sheila, the other, uh, one of the other things you do in your lab is to study sounds in the sea. So tell us what you're doing and what, what you're interested in sound is and how that relates to the biomechanical side that you've been talking about. It turns, so I started my career studying sound and how animals produce sound and not the typical animals. Cause I don't think I can bring myself to study typical things if there's such a thing. <laughs> right. So not whales. I got interested in fish sounds. I got interested in lobster sounds. And it turns out that these animals, this is long before I was studying fast stuff, use things like springs and slow muscles to make vibrations. So a lot of the same physics that I've ended up working on in the fast movement world Mm. are exactly the same things that are at play in sound. And it makes sense, right? So a lot of things are producing sounds at fairly high frequencies, which means very fast movement. So I, I, I got my career started studying how animals produce sound. And I discovered this kind of crazy thing where spiny lobsters make sound using stick and slip friction like a violin. And that discovery put a new category of sound production um, for biology in place. And it actually stimulated a lot of interesting work on um, the physics and the engineering side. So, and, and what's their string and what's the bow in that? Yeah, analogy? so they, they have an antenna uh-huh. that rubs over a little plate on the kind of below their eyes. These are spiny lobsters like that are found in Florida, uh-huh. um, not the clawed lobsters. And they use a little soft tissue nub to rub over a kind of uh, sticky surface, not like gluey sticky, but just sticky in the sense of really, really tiny, hard structures. And so it sticks and slips to produce sound. Hmm. So I got interested in the physics of all this because it's super weird. And, and of course, you know, stick and slip friction, as it turns out, is not well understood. So it was very interesting from a physics point of view to see how biology and evolution has played with that. Hmm. So, you know, being a scientist, you kind of got to roll with the punches sometimes. Some projects work and sometimes they don't. And I went off to do the second phase of my training after getting my PhD to study sound production in mantis shrimp. I knew that they they had this cool appendage, but that was not what I set out to study. I was really interested in their sound production because I had heard some rumors that they produce sound. It wasn't in the scientific literature, but it was in the natural history literature. So I went to study that, and it was a total failure, and that's why I started working on fast movements. But eventually, I finally recorded a mantis shrimp. Hmm. And that's so, what been, so, so why was it a failure? Because you couldn't, you couldn't record the sounds or you yeah. couldn't get them to do it or what? No, oh, I couldn't see. Well, okay. So this is super weird. They, pr- they well, in, in hindsight, they produce a sound. So these are animals that the and, animals. And, and can, and can you recreate the sound for us? Can you just do it on the air? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So these are like foot long animals that are making a sound that sounds like either a lion or a whale. 
So I recorded these sounds in the field, never imagining that this very small animal is making an impossibly low frequency sound. But, you know, you can't just go and record some mystery sound in the ocean and then claim that it's coming from your animal. <laughs> like, that's not allowed in science. You actually have to demonstrate this. So I'd gone and I'd spent all my research money and I could not prove that these sounds were coming from the animal. I did actually finally hold an animal while it was making the sound and I had failed to turn on the recorder. Oh, no. Like, this was like... A year and a half into my postdoc, and I'm like, this, okay, that is it. I'm done. I'm going to go study something that I, you know, the fast movement, which actually ended up being challenging because there were no video cameras that right. could even capture the movement. So I kept hitting these weird things. Eventually, though, we got the sounds. And we went down to look at a population in California uh, right off the coast of L.A., uh, an island called Catalina that has a research station. And we discovered that these animals are living in mud, these big mud deep tubes and they rumble we named the sound rumble because it's a low frequency sound it's actually infrasound um although it has higher frequency overtones that we can hear and they rumble back and forth to each other all the time and so we've done all this work and I, you know I, I just a couple of weeks ago i had someone come in my office and they're like have you figured out why they're making those sounds like as in hello what's <laughs> taking you so long <laughs> And I, so we still don't know because oh, it's no. really hard to study. So you don't know what they're saying to each other. No. no, no. And it's taken a ton of work. And it's for many reasons. There, there are reasons why people know a lot about bird song and insect song because you can take a, this like mi the microphone with a parabolic around it and you can localize that sound. But in water, sound travels five times more quickly. And you cannot tell where the sound is coming from. So you have to use big hydrophone arrays, these underwater microphones, a whole bunch of them in a row to try to like triangulate where the sounds are. Sounds like a total pain. It is a total pain, but darn it, I am determined in my lifetime to straighten out what is happening on a very noisy benthos. The, 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 the bottom of the ocean is full of these animals doing stuff that shouldn't be possible, that they shouldn't be using. doesn't make any sense. It's like a total frontier. So, so do you know how they make these really low sounds? Yes. Given their small size? I think you were getting there, but... Oh, no, uh, I forgot to oh, tell you that. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. They, they have muscles that contract, that vibrate the edge of their body. The, this thing called it. They have like a kind of a shield over their thorax, and they vibrate that. Hmm. Kind of like a speaker element. Hmm. Neat. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I really, really want to know why they're doing that. <laughs> it's a hard problem, and I need to get funding. Yeah. And that, as we've talked about, we know is how hard not that is. trivial. Indeed. So, yeah. Are there are there practical applications that you you think are in the works? I, I'm so stuck on the the basic side of things. With what you're saying, it's hard for me to come up with that question. I mean, it, as soon as you go under the water, the surface of the ocean, there's so much sound there. Sound travels so quickly. Everything is much more sensitive to picking up on sound. How in the hell is anything using that information to behave? I mean, that's just such a, a crazy different way of thinking about things than in air. I'm totally with you, Sheila, that it's, it's, it's perplexing. One of the most insightful things, it, it, time periods in my career in terms of the sound in the sea stuff. Um, for a couple years, I worked with a program and some artists and some other stuff related to deaf people's experience of their environment. So... As hearing people, we really rely on our pressure-sensitive ears to localize sound. And so we, we kind of think that this is really, really important, and you can't function if you don't have that. But any deaf person will tell you, 
that they have a tremendous understanding of their acoustic environment without having specialized localized sound receiver sound receivers. And so, you know, when I, when I was working with those folks and it was just so interesting and so cool and, you know, it really was a, a purposeful connection because these animals that I study aren't thought to have directionally sensitive ears, but you can still get a lot of information from tactile experience, the vibration of the body. And when you're talking about animals that are sitting on the bottom of the ocean, they can be sensitive mindset as humans and recognize that there's a lot of different channels of information down there that we just don't fully understand, but are very, very widely used. There are a ton of acoustic animals. On the applied side of all this, it's actually, there, there is a lot of, a lot of focus on sound in the ocean. And for starters, it's because when people are working in the ocean, whether you're an engineer working at submarines or, you know, whatever, most, anybody will tell you that most people have no idea where those sounds are coming from. There are a few things that we know, but the vast majority of biological sounds in the ocean, we do not know what they are from, even today. So if you don't know what the sounds are, that means that if you're trying to design or monitor what's going on in the ocean, you've got a big problem, whether it's, you know, enemy submarines or just figuring out what the heck is going on. So that's a big area of applied work that's really interesting that ties into basic research, actually. Well, I just wanted to ask you about the, the first part of what you were saying with, you know, there being so many different ways of thinking about sound in aquatic environments and our terrestrial bias throwing that off. There's a lot of interest now in noise pollution in terrestrial habitats. And, you know, there's been for a long time in, in aquatic habitats, too. But are there dimensions of noise pollution that maybe we need to think more about and we tend to, you know, sort of minimize those because we do think about how sound propagates in air or how things that live in air use sound, I guess a better way to say that. So, Marty, a lot of people have been thinking about noise pollution in the ocean. It's been recognized as a huge issue for vibrating uh, structures like uh, the um, wind turbines, and it's been recognized in the sense that we know that animals die from sound in the ocean, from loud sounds, and that it causes stress, and that it damages their ability to communicate things as basic as where a mate may be. And the crazy thing is that since we don't know what most of the animals are that are producing sound, there's a real concern that we are going to lose that diversity because of the huge impact of sound pollution that we have on the ocean today before we even know what the heck those animals are. It's a really pressing need and a real major concern. Uh, people are studying that. They, they certainly are, um, but it's a big issue. The, you know, the, the funny thing is kind of coming full circle. One of the noisiest things in the ocean is cavitation. And some animals are really, really loud. There are other animals that are shooting cavitation bubbles. So animals themselves do generate a lot of noise pollution, but it doesn't compare to some of the human-made um, sounds that are coming in. And it is lethal for a lot of animals. So it's, that is a, that's a really pressing concern that a lot of people have at this time. Well, Sheila, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been really great to talk to you about this stuff. Uh, really fun conversation. So thanks. 
Thank you, Art and Marty, for a great interview. And I think this is the first time I've ever been interviewed by two scientists. Mm. And you all did a great job. So <laughs> Thanks, thank you. This was really fun. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> all right. That's a wrap. Thanks to Rachel Kramer for editing and production help. Gerard Sapes edits our scripts to make sure they don't sound like academic papers. Haley Hansen and Victoria Doloff handled Big Biology's social media channels. Steve Lane and Roman Boisseau manage our website. Music on today's episode is from Poddington Bear. 